0: Welcome to the LifePoint Palm Bay Sermon Podcast. We encourage you to make copies of this message, but please don't charge for those copies. If you'd like to know more about LifePoint Palm Bay, please visit lifepointpb.com. Hello, church. It's good to see you this morning. It is Sunday, uh, April the 26th, 2020. This is episode 10 of A House to House And as we get into this today, we're going to take a a break just for this week from Ephesians. Before we get into Ephesians chapter 6, the Lord's really stirred something in my heart, and I want to share it with you. And the question really is this, what is God up to when he turns the world upside down? You know, this is not a new event. It's not the first time this has happened. And when God allows the world to be literally turned upside down, is he doing something? Is there a purpose or a plan to it? We're going to look at that. Even as you go into scripture, you're going to see it. If we go all the way back to the book of Genesis. We have the flood. The flood literally turned the world upside down. What is God doing? What's happening there? And yet we see his purpose of establishing this godly line, his family, really the whole story of scripture that's going to wrap around this as we see this this worldwide flood taking place in Genesis chapter six. And then we see Joseph, another worldwide event. It says that famine was impacting the whole world. And so Joseph is there. He's been taken into captivity, sold as a slave by his brothers. You talk about family dysfunction. And so he's sold into slavery, ends up in Egypt for the perfect time in history when the whole world is turned upside down because there's a lack of food. And the scripture says very clearly, God put him there to save many people alive. And so God has a plan, he has a purpose and things that he's doing, even if we don't clearly see it in the moment. And then maybe the greatest example of all happens in the New Testament. Do you realize that Jesus is born when the whole world is being turned upside down? Because it says that Caesar Augustus decreed. And when you're Caesar and you decree, everybody answers. They respond to that. Everyone had to go back to their hometown to be taken in this census. And so the whole world is discombobulated and Jesus is born into the midst of that. What is God up to when the world gets turned upside down? We're going to look at that this morning. We're going to do it in the book of Acts, Acts, the end of Acts chapter 11 and into chapter 12. So if you want to turn there, but first we're going to have some worship together. I'll see you again in a few minutes. Welcome back, church. We're in Acts chapter 11, the end of that chapter, and we have the story of Agabus and some other prophets who come from Jerusalem, and they're there in Antioch. And Agabus prophesies that there's going to be this famine, this worldwide famine. It's going to be difficult. It's going to happen during the days of Claudius when he's emperor. We go into secular history, we find that there was a famine that happened between the years of 44 and 48 AD in the reign of Claudius. And the interesting thing about that, that famine, it, in the beginning of it, it was much more severe around Rome and what we would call Italy today. And that's where they were feeling the impacts of it. Later on, as it went later into the famine, it spread, and it was much more impactful in Judea, which is interesting because that's the early church took up an offering and sent it to their brothers in Judea. Why? Because that's where the famine was the most severe. And so we see this all happening at the end of chapter 11 in the book of Acts, this worldwide famine, this worldwide event, the world being turned upside down. And what do we see? What's the principle that's coming out of this? We see God's family caring for one another, taking care of one another. When this happened, And by the way, even in the Old Testament examples, Noah brought his family together on the ark, all right? It was small in number, that small circle, his immediate family. Joseph, it gets bigger. It's not only his immediate family, it's his national family. And then when Jesus comes, it expands even further. It's not just an immediate family, it's really the whole world. And so, but there is this picture that when God turns the world upside down, it's an opportunity for his family to care for the family, to care for one another. And so you see this happening there in the end of, book, uh, in the end of chapter 11 in the book of Acts. Now, we get into chapter 12. And and now remember, these are all connected. As many times as I've read Acts, I never saw until this past week the connection between chapter 11 and chapter 12. And I'll show it to you here in just a minute. But here in the beginning of chapter 12, Herod, he begins to persecute or continues to persecute the church. This is Herod uh, Agrippa. This is the grandson of Herod the Great. Jesus was born when Herod the Great was on the throne. Then there was another son of Herod the Great that comes in and he rules, and now we're Herod Agrippa. And he's, he's sitting on the throne. He is king of, of Israel at that point in time, or Judea. And he's persecuting the church. As a matter of fact, it says that he takes James and has him put to death. James is the brother of John, he's one of the, one of the 12. And so he puts him to death. And that encourages the people, and Herod was a people pleaser, so he takes and arrests Peter. So Peter's arrested, and the purpose is, he's, got, he's arrested him, he's going to kill him, but he doesn't kill him because it's Passover. Now this is interesting. Think back, it's 12 to 15 years earlier, Jesus comes into Jerusalem, it's Passover. He's going to be arrested, he's going to be put on a cross, he's going to rise again. All that happens during Passover. So here we are 12 to 15 years later, Peter's being arrested. He can't be killed right away because it's Passover. It says it's the days of unleavened bread, which are the seven days that come after Passover. Remember, Passover is a three-in-one feast. It's Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, all together. By the way, just a little side note. This is my opinion. The Scripture doesn't tell us this. But I believe that Peter was released from prison on that Saturday night sometime after 6 p.m. before the sun came up on Sunday morning because that's the time we know that Jesus rose from the dead. And I believe, again, that the Lord was reminding them, hey, remember, you couldn't control or predict or explain what took place when I rose from the dead, and you're not going to be able to control or predict or explain this either. So here we have Peter in jail, and notice what it says in verse 6. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, I believe that was Saturday night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains. Get the picture. He's got a soldier on either side, and he's chained to both of them. There are centuries before the door. So outside the door, where he's in prison, there are centuries, and it says there later on. It tells us there's an ar- iron gate there. I mean, he's in he's in supermax, okay? Which to me is really interesting. It seems to overkill for Peter. He's not like a murderer or anything. Why is he in supermax? I believe it ties back to the fact Herod remembered what happened with Jesus. We're not going to have this guy who says he's a follower of Jesus pulling some kind of shenanigans like that on my on my watch. So he's got him chained. To two soldiers. You know the rest of the story, and if you don't, you can read it there in Acts chapter 12. The the angel comes, and he frees Peter, and he sets him free. But I don't want to get there just yet. I'm ahead of myself. I want you to focus on this next principle that comes out. What is God doing when he turns the world upside down, or he allows it to be turned upside down? He allows you and I to experience rest, but not to retreat. I want you to understand that. To rest, but not retreat. Now, here's Peter. Peter knowing that he's going to die, and he lays down between two soldiers in, in supermax, and he goes sound asleep. He's not worried about what do I need to do, or how am I going to fix this, or what's going to happen. He sleeps. By fact, he sleeps so soundly, we're going to see a little bit later, that the angel really had to wake him up. And, um, and we'll talk about that a little bit more when we get there. But he is out. There's a rest. It's like, Lord, I'm doing what you asked me to do. I'm following you. I know there are all these threats around. I know that every, everything seems like it's coming apart. James has already died. This is not a threat. It's not a bluff. He knows that James has been killed, it's, and that's the plan for him. He lays down and he goes to sleep. Some of you are not resting. I don't mean sleeping. Some of you are emotionally, mentally worried, fretful, trying to figure it out. What am I supposed to be doing? Am I doing the right thing? Am I doing the wrong thing? If I don't get it right, maybe I'm not going to get the right result. Folks, during a time when the Lord allows the world to be turned upside down, it's a picture, it's an opportunity for you and I to be a picture of rest. We're resting in Him. You don't have to figure it all out. You say, but Troy, I want to even make sure I'm praying the right things, that I'm doing the right things so that God gets the glory and all that. I appreciate that. I want the same thing. But remember in this story, God's not going to let you miss it. You don't have to fret over making sure you get it the right way. Now, some of you are the other side of the coin. You may be, I love this. I don't have to deal with people and all their shenanigans and stuff. This is great. Enjoy it. It's a gift from God. It's a time of rest. But remember, it's not permanent. God did not call you to always be at rest. He didn't call you to retreat. He didn't call you to be a a recluse. He called you and I to be engaged in the lives of people. And you're getting to be refreshed in this time. But he's doing a work. So here's my challenge to you. If you're loving it, here's my challenge. Be asleep, but be prepared to be awakened because the Lord's going to wake you up and he's going to have a message. So be ready for it. Be listening for it. Now it goes on in this passage. Um, in verse 12, it says, when he realized this, this is Peter, he's taken out of prison and by the angel, the angel wakes him up. Literally, it says it hits him in the, the angel hits him inside. I, I, I can picture this in my mind. I have done this a thousand times with Andrew, my son. I go to the door. I say, Andrew, it's time to get up. He doesn't move. He doesn't budge. No sound. No nothing. I don't even know if he's alive in there. So I go. I get close to him. I kind of punch him in the side, shake him a little bit. Andrew, it's time to wake up. And he will, you know, kind of that kind of thing. And if you really want to see something funny, I try to have a conversation when I first wake him up out of that. Um, I'll ask him a question. And he's trying, I think it's blue. What do you mean it's blue? I ask you if you got your homework done. And, you know, he's discombobulated. This is Peter. He's discombobulated. If you read the scripture, he's, the angel says, hey, put your clothes on, Peter. Get your shoes on. We're, we're, follow me. We're going out this way. But after he gets out, and this takes a while, but Peter, Peter's just following along. He's half asleep. He doesn't know what's going on. But verse 12 says, when he realized, when he realized, hey, the Lord has delivered me. I know now. I'm awake now. I know what's going on. He realized this. He went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark. Uh, We're going to talk about John Mark a little bit later. This is Barnabas' sister, in case you're wondering. This is Barnabas' sister. This is John Mark's uncle, uh, is Barnabas. Uh, And so this is the house where where this takes place. And he says, there were many gathered together, and they were praying. Do you know, there are times when I'm reading God's Word where I wish there was more commentary. I wish they would give us more, and this is one of those places. I, I get it, there were many gathered together, and you think, well, many probably more than two or three, probably less than 30 or 40 because these houses weren't big in Israel. And so, but there were many. Many to me doesn't matter as much. But you know what I would ask if I were talking to them, if I were talking to that group of believers, what were you praying? What were you talking to God about? What were you asking? If I could ask the Lord, Lord, if you could give us a little bit more information here, what were they praying about? And it doesn't. It doesn't tell us any more than they were praying. But here's what I would challenge you with. Based on what happens in the text here, If they were praying, I'm not sure they were praying with expectation. And I believe that what God calls you and me, I know what he calls you and me to, is that when we pray during these times, we pray with expectation. We pray expecting him to do the miraculous. If they were praying for Peter to be released, they weren't expecting God to do it because when he showed up, they thought it was his ghost. They thought he was dead. And when little Rhoda, the servant girl, says, It's Peter. I know it's Peter. They called her crazy. And so they weren't expecting God to do the supernatural, whatever they were praying. And you know what? Maybe they weren't praying for Peter's release. Maybe they were praying like we do sometimes. Maybe they were worrying out loud and calling it prayer. I don't know. Again, I wish there was more commentary here. What I do know is that when God calls us to pray during these times, he wants us to pray with expectation. He wants us to pray believing that he's doing the supernatural, that he's at work doing what only he can do. And I want to have eyes to see it and ears to hear it. I want to challenge you, before we go on, we're going to stop right here. And I want to challenge you to do something in your groups or even by yourself where you are right now. Would you stop and just talk to the Lord? No, um, no made-up prayers, no worrying about whether you get the words right. Just talk to him honestly. Ask him, say, Lord, am I praying with expectation right now? Would that, def- would that describe how I'm praying? And just ask him. Ask him to, see the, it, to, to allow you to see. And if we're not, Lord, we repent of not praying with expectation, and we want to be guided in our prayer. Spend some time, whether you're alone or with a group of people, spend some time just asking the Lord to reveal to you, reveal you to you, to reveal your heart. Are you just praying perfunctory prayers? Are you just praying the words, but they don't mean anything? Are you praying out of fear and just worry? And really, we're, we're expressing our worry. We're verbalizing our worry and calling it prayer. And sometimes we do worry, and we express those things, but we don't stay there. The Holy Spirit doesn't leave us there. So I want to challenge you. Take a few minutes. Seek the Lord. Engage in some worship as the team leads you, and then we'll come back in a minute and wrap this passage up. Welcome back, church. As we look at the last part of chapter 12 here, uh, it's interesting to see what takes place. Look with me in verse 19 and 20. It says, After Herod searched for him and did not find him, he searched for Peter, um, but he couldn't find him, he, explained, he examined the sentries. In order that they should be put to death, he, he questioned them, and they couldn't give him a good explanation. He just was gone. We're sorry, he was here, and then he wasn't. That didn't fly, so he had him put to death. Then he went down from Judea by, uh, to Caesarea, and spent some time there. Now, Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon down there in Caesarea. And they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. Now, I'd seen that before. They did this because the, their country depended on the king's country to supply their food, but it never tied it together with the famine in chapter 11. This famine's going on. Food is a big, big deal. So they don't really respect Herod. They don't really care about Herod. They care about their food. They care about their supply and their source of supply. And they were dependent upon Herod. And I'm going to ask you a question, church. Is your hope in Herod? Theirs was. Their hope was in Herod. Herod represents anyone, anything, any system of this world. Uh, It's not necessarily uh, evil. It's not necessarily good or bad. Let me illustrate if you receive provision from the Lord through the government uh, in some way, it doesn't make the government evil or bad. It just makes it a tool. All right. If you receive resources through your work because you go and you do your work, doesn't make the company you work for good or bad necessarily. It's a tool where you receive. But here's the key thing. Where does your hope lie? What are you trusting in? Who are you trusting in? When the Lord allows the world to be turned upside down, it, it, it reveals to many of us who and what we're trusting in. Are we trusting in the federal government? They're trying to do everything they can. I will not fault them for that. But they are not our supply. And they certainly can't be our hope. Are you trusting in your job? You're grateful you still have a job. Praise God you do. I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful for each one who's still working not just for the income that it provides, but for the purpose that it gives you. But are you trusting in your job, your company, your boss? They may be a tool that God uses, but they are not your supply. Where's your hope? As we go through this, God reveals where our hope is, where our trust is, who we're depending on, um, what we're depending on. And this is the beautiful thing about this, is that, these people were trusting in Herod, and it says that they began to praise him. They began to cry out, the voice of a God and not of a man. You're, you're like a God. You are the greatest. Um, I had a mentor tell me one time, it's good advice, be careful when people criticize you too much or praise you too highly. Both can be bad. Don't go too far one way or the other. And the reality is they were praising him too much and, and he, he ate it up. He received it, and the scripture says that God, in that moment, smote him, the old King James, caused him to have some kind of infirmity. The scripture says he was eaten with worms. He died. Something, if you read Josephus, he said it was some kind of, of ailment in his bowels, and, and after five days, he, he died. We don't know that. That's, that's Josephus who says that. The scripture doesn't tell us. All the scripture tells us is that there were worms, and he died. He did not give God glory. He received the praise of man. He began to think too highly of himself, and God removed him. Here's another thing that I want to remind you of. If our hope is in the wrong thing or the wrong person during a time like this, God's faithful to reveal it, and he's also faithful to point us in a different direction so that our hope and our trust can be placed on him and in him where it needs to be to start with. They were trusting in Herod, and now Herod is gone. Where are they going to get food from? See, the fact is, when I trust in the Lord, He cannot be taken away. He will not fail. He cannot be caught off guard, and He has no shortage. His stimulus never runs out. His provision is always abundant. It's never-ending. As you're walking through this, both for yourself and for those around you, it's an opportunity to ask the question, Is my hope inherited? Has it been? Maybe your hope is in your savings or your retirement or your investments. Again, it's not bad to save or have investments or any of those things, but our hope, our trust cannot be there. I want to challenge you to take a moment and just ask the Lord, Lord, am I trusting, am I hoping in anyone or anything other than you? The last part of the chapter, verses 24 and 25 tells you what happens when, we, when we're able to allow God to use us to care for his people. That's what we looked at as we started. By the way, I want to say thank you to you as a church, the way you have ministered and cared. One of the things that really encouraged me was an email I got just a couple days ago from an older woman in our church. She's been a member for about two years, and she was sharing how someone younger had reached out. She's a widow. To make sure, did she need groceries? Did she have toilet paper? You know, anything that she needed, and how much that had blessed her. And even they had exchanged some pictures and some funny, some silliness, as she called it, which was really needed in these days. So, thank you for being the body. Thank you for caring for one another and doing that. And keep it up. Keep doing it. We also, during this time, we're we're resting, but we're not retreating. We're we're trusting in the Lord. Um, we're allowing Him to renew and, and, and give us refreshing, but we also recognize it's for a purpose. And then we're also, during these days, having the time to evaluate in whom and what do we hope? Um, what do I trust in, really? And by the way, that's a journey, not a destination. I have had many encounters with the Lord in in, in revealing and redefining what, I, what and whom I trust, and He keeps on doing that. And just about the time I think I'm completely trusting Him, He'll show me something else. So it's a journey. It's not a place where you arrive. And then the last thing I want you to see, what does God do during times like this? Verse 24, but the word of God increased and multiplied. What do you mean the word of God increased? In other words, people were more receptive to God's word. And as a result, the number of people following God's word, following the Lord Jesus Christ, increased. It's the same wording, the same language he uses in Acts chapter 6, where it talks about the church multiplying and increasing. So they needed deacons. They needed people to come along and help. It's the same wording that he uses. And notice in verse 25, And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service. What was their service? They had to take the offering from Antioch to the people of Judea. So they had completed that, and they stayed there while this is going on. Now they're going back to Antioch. But notice what it says, Bringing with them John whose other name was Mark, John Mark, as we know him. Uh, he's going to be an evangelist. He's going to be a gospel writer. God's going to use him in significant ways. But right now, he's just a young boy. A matter of fact, it's not even Paul the apostle. It's Saul still. His name hasn't even been changed. He hasn't been set out. They haven't gone on their first missionary journey. So it's Barnabas, Saul, and Barnabas' nephew, John Mark. Here's what I want you to see in all of that. You have time right now to invest in people, in their lives, even if it seems like a small way, you have no idea the eternal reward, the eternal fruit that God's going to produce because of that small investment in the life of people right now. John Mark was a nobody, but the Lord brought him to Saul and Barnabas' attention and said, hey, why not you come with us? Can you imagine what it must have been like for John Mark, this young man, walking with Barnabas and Saul at the beginning of all that God was doing in, the, in that church at that time? And so God's giving you that opportunity. He's giving me that opportunity. Don't miss it. The opportunity. I heard, I've heard stories during this time of different ones who are reaching out to others and doing Bible studies or just devotionals with them or just communicating, just praying together. And you may think, it's just a little thing. And And it's an insignificant thing. Maybe we think it's an insignificant person. There are no insignificant persons to the Lord. They all have value. They all have meaning. God has a plan for every single one of them. So during these days, this is how God wants to use you. When he turns the world upside down, he's advancing his kingdom. And I want to be part of it, don't you? Let's let's engage. Let's not retreat. Let's not be recluses. Let's engage, even in the smallest way, in what God's doing right now. God bless you. Grace and peace.